Um, next week is our last week for the semester, so don't come back after that on a Wednesday. Um, put that in your calendars or whatever, but next week will be our last week. Um, what, what I wanted, wanted to do tonight was think, kind of thinking about where we've just been in the Christian calendar, Holy Week, Good Friday, Easter. I want to look at a passage in the New Testament, the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, where Paul, he's sort of reflecting on the reality of what we just celebrated at Easter, and he's saying this shouldn't be just something that's true. It is that it should actually impact how you do community, primarily through the way that you think, that your thinking should be so hardwired, rewired by the reality of this, because his spirit is now in you, dwelling in you, dwelling with your thoughts and how you think about the world and how you think about yourself and others. And that should have a very pragmatic impact just on how you do relationships, how you treat each other. And, I, and so I thought that would be just a very practical way of, of coming out of Easter and thinking about it. But before I get, I get into that, let me kind of introduce this in a slightly different way here. How many of you, when I say these names, this is, this is a TV show that you've watched. You don't have to admit you watched it. You're familiar with it. Okay. You can just, you know, say that some of those, um, sister wives, anyone duck dynasty, Jersey shore, the real housewives of whatever, fill in the blank. There's a hundred of them there. Extreme makeover. You know that one? Uh, the Bachelor, The Bachelorette, as no one will admit to that one, I'm sure. Uh, Fear Factor, uh, Survivor, all those, all those different ones. Okay. What do all those have in common? What are they all? <laughs> yeah, reality TV shows. I came across this fascinating article. <clears throat> this article um, on January 6th, 1973, there was an anthropologist w woman by the name of Margaret Mead, and she published a little essay um, in, the, in the TV guide, for those of you who are old enough to remember TV guides. And it wasn't on the front cover. In fact, it was at the very back of the TV guide. Um, in fact, it, 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 it kind of tucked in right in between an advertisement for Virginia Slims and a profile on Shelley Winters. Kind of lets you know how, how old... This was here. But Mead wrote about a new TV series that was coming out on PBS. I wonder how many of you remember this. It was called An American Family. Let me, um, this is, I, I dug up a picture of it, best I could find. And this, this, this was apparently this family. Um, an American Family is what it was called. It was, um, they were a middle-class California household. It was uh, Bill and Pat Loud and their five children. And it said this, Bill and Pat Loud and their children um, are neither actors nor public figures, she wrote in this article. Rather, they're the people that they're actually portraying on television. She said they're members of a real family. And producers cut seven months of family boredom and turmoil, including the corrosion of Bill and Pat's marriage, unfortunately, into 12 one-hour episodes, she wrote. Um, in 1973, Margaret Mead, this anthropologist, wrote this. We have, quote, a new kind of art form. She says, it is as significant as an invention as the invention of drama 
or the novel, she thought, that it was this totally new thing. No one had done this before. Now, this, this mode of whatever this is laid dormant uh, for many years. It wasn't until 1992, MTV made, you remember that reality show? Anyone remember? The Real World. MTV, 1992, they kind of re- replugged this sort of thing, the real world, which kind of updated the formula with a spin. They just took a bunch of young college people and threw them in a house and watched the drama unfold, as you can imagine. Um, Nothing happened again until 2000. It wasn't until the year 2000 when actually Margaret Mead almost started to seem prophetic because there were, um, in 2000, Big Brother came out and then Survivor. And then after that, it was the floodgate of these reality TV shows. Um, And basically what what they turned into was a mixture of two things, of a game show mixed with an anthropological experiment is what it is, right? Everyone wants, in fact, viewers were even willing to put up with like low camera quality. I remember the Big Brother show. It was all hidden cameras. It was behind uh, plants and it was in the wall and it was pretty low quality video. People were willing to watch it. This is what many people who, who write about what this has turned into reality television. They said that they were willing to watch it because of the allure of thinking that they might get a glimpse, not just of what people are doing. It's not just that, but why they're doing it. There's something scintillating about what's the person's mindset for why they did this or why they did that. Their inner thoughts. What what were the motives behind all these 12 different people doing what they did? Um, And and, and these authors talk about, and they use that word scintillating. They say there's something scintillating to the human heart, the human mind, that says if I can get behind the reasons for you doing this, that's somehow exciting for me, and that sort of thing. In Philippians chapter 2, it's a passage that some people have have even called the centerpiece of the New Testament. Um, We see in it, we get a glimpse of two things. Number one, we get a glimpse of God's inner motives, his mindset. Why is he doing what he does? (laughs) What's going on there? So we get a picture of sort of the, if, if, if there were a reality show with God in it, Um, This passage is going to give us a look into those unseen things. But number two, secondly, it gives us a picture of, um, or a sketch, I could say, of the goal of human existence. What would it look like if that same, those same motives that are in God, what if those could somehow infect me? What if those same motives could make their way into my life what would my community look like if it made it into your life and my life? And then we just did life together. So it's going to give us both those two things. You following me on that? So um, Ephesians, or, uh, sorry, Philippians chapter 2, it's going to give us this definitive picture of what's in God's mind and what can be in our mind because of the presence of his spirit dwelling in us. So let's, I'm going to get rid of the American family here. That did not end very well. Um, Philippians chapter uh, 2, and let's read, well, let's just go ahead and read starting in verse 1. Is that large enough? Can you see it, or does it need to be larger? It's okay? Okay. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. 
So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, that's that key piece of, if you're participating in the spirit, that's the connection between you and then his mindset. Any affection and sympathy, then he says, complete my joy by being of the same. Now, this is a word he's, this word mind right here, it's a word he's going to use again and again and again. Anytime a biblical author repeats something, you know that's, that's a key thought. That's uh, emphasized for a reason. Being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one, there's the word again, mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Now, here's, here's sort of the key passage, starting at verse 5, and notice what word he starts with here. Have this mind um, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. There's a connection to the Spirit. Scripture teaches that it is the Spirit who places you in Christ, uh, you know, you talked about being bapt one baptism, one Lord, one faith, that you've been placed into Christ by the Holy Spirit. So this mind, the connection there's this mind is yours. Um, it's yours in Christ Jesus because you've been placed in Christ by the Spirit. Who, though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Uh, the, the word is like clutched onto but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Same word that was for, he was, he was in, in form God. Now he, he's also in form man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then here's the therefore, because of that, because of that descent, Here's the ascent. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus, is, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now here we have... It's, it's certainly a beautifully written picture of, you could say, the Christ story. What it is that, that Jesus' mission was in coming this, this uh, descent and ascent. Um, and it's, it's distilled. Um, one, one author referred to this passage, which I love this phrase, as it's, it's the story of the slave king. Do you get the juxtaposition there? <laughs> the slave king. Um, that that the, the king, he doesn't just become a slave, that he, he takes on this nature, this form. And so he is the slave king in his own story. And this tells us of the, this sort of gives us the most content, maybe you could say, about what God's intent is, what his mindset is that you'll ever read. It tells us what's going on in his mind and what he thought about those things, his, his, his motives, What's driving him? And then number two, as we said, not only that, but the reason why he shows us this is that if we're in Christ, the spirit has the ability to, 
transform our mind. And mind doesn't just mean rational thought. What are your motives? What are the things that you love? What are your affections? What are the things that you're drawn toward? That's what's all that is packed into this concept of have the same mind that Christ has, because it can be transformative. And then that has impact, like it's a very practical impact on how we do community, how we treat each other, how we handle conflict. Because see, if I take into myself this new mind, this this power that's available there, and it affects all those things, um, it'll change not just how I think about things, but again, it, it changes my relationships. So here's the slave king story. I just want to reflect upon some things that Paul says. If you think about the slave king story and you realize, you'll realize those motives and then you realize, oh, those are the motives that need to then again creep into my own, own life. The first one I want to point out that we see in verse five is that Jesus was God. Simply that, that's, that's one of his first points. Verse five says, have this mind among yourselves, which was in King Jesus or Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So if if Christ through the Holy Spirit is living in me, present with my thoughts, then here's a very pertinent question for me. How can I be so pessimistic about my hurts, my destructive habits, my hangups, my, my challenges, my issues that I have from the past. And I kind of have a view, well, I'll just never change. You know, this, this is just who I am. So many times people have, I've heard people say, well, that's just how I am. And that's this pessimistic view of saying, that's, that's not taking into account or into consideration what it means to be in Christ, to have the mind of Christ. I think that's why Paul says he uses this language when he's talking about, um, let me go to it here, 2 Corinthians 10, when he says, we destroy, he's talking about living a, uh, a victorious Christian life. And he says, we destroy arguments, lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God, and we take, uh, take every thought captive to bring it under obedience in line with Christ. This is one of the biggest obstacles. Um, there's, there's one Christian psychologist who, who used this phrase, and I don't think he invented it or anything, but he, he talked about the idea of not having a flourishing mind, and he used the phrase mindlessness. And he says many Christians struggle with mindlessness. This is the idea that, you know, your body can be at the dinner table with the family, but, but your mind isn't present on the things that you're actually, it's, it's not engaging with the people who are there. Maybe it's running over problems, uh, repetitive, um, kind of anxious, dull, low-grade obsession with uh, things you have to get done. You know, just in, in life problems. And so as a result, he talks about this idea that your mind is really taken hostage. Your mind is taken off because your mind, that's all the, remember, that's the motives for how you're engaging with people, your, your thoughts for how you're treating people, all of that stuff mixed in there. And so you might talk less, you might say something, but it's usually abrupt. It's usually superficial because your mind is taken hostage. And so when you do this, this sort of thing, it's not that you're trying to do it, 
it becomes a habit of the mind where the mind is not fully present and engaged in this way. But living life in the presence of Christ, here's, here's how you start. Here's how you just start with that. Because if, if, I'm that way. I'm, I'm very often that way. And, and here's what I would suggest. Here's the way that you start living in the presence of God when it comes to your thoughts. And it's simply to pay attention to your thoughts. Just to pay attention. I think this is what the, uh, the psalmist has in mind when he... Um, Psalm 139, you probably know this psalm. It's a famous passage. And it, and it addresses this very issue as well as other issues. David writes this, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. And then he goes on kind of um, uh, circling that, unwrapping it. And toward the very end, he, there's this great phrase. He says, search me. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. Because see, here's the thing is, as you and I begin to monitor, and again, this is just the start of saying, I don't want this mindlessness. <laughs> I, I want to have a heightened awareness of my mind because that's a critical place of what it means to follow Jesus. As I start to monitor him, I'm going to encounter a lot of unwanted <laughs> Thought things going on in the mind, anxious. Uh, I, might, I might become aware that I'm envious. I might become aware that I'm pouting about something. But I'll also begin to recognize what kind of thoughts the spirit is flowing in when those are in my mind. Here's, here's a little test for you, for when you as, as you start to do that. Take any thought that you find keeps repeatedly coming back to you whatever that might be, and ask a couple of these questions. What directions do those thoughts lead me in? Um, ask yourself, are they leading me toward the person God's calling me to be? Or are they leading me in a different direction? Um, if, you, if you really want to try this, this is kind of an interesting experiment or way to do it. If you really want to kind of help monitoring it, you do what's called experience sampling method. Experience sampling. And here's what you do. Take, take your phone or your watch or whatever you have and set random intervals on it. Could, maybe, it's, maybe it's every hour. Maybe it's, I don't know, whatever it might be. Set random intervals throughout your day and try this for a day. Try it for a week. And I think you'll be shocked <clears throat> at what happens. And so when that goes off, you write down, maybe, you know, type it in your phone. Um, where are you at? Who are you with? And what are you thinking about at that moment <clears throat> right there? Um, and then um, ask questions like, how connected to God do I feel? Given those thoughts, that's the, that's the primary connection. What are the thoughts going on? What are the surrounding experiences that might be influencing those thoughts? And then how connected to God do I feel? Or how disconnected to God do I feel? Do this for a week. Look at the activities and the people you'll find a connection is my point. <laughs> those thoughts when you, man, I, those thoughts I feel closest to God, you'll start to see a connection between the activities you're doing and the people you're with. And then uh, the obvious step of spiritual formation is to say, I need to do more of those and less of these. <laughs> I need more of these people, less of those people. I need more of these activities, less of those activities. That's just a very 
practical, pragmatic way of saying, I'm going to impact the way I think. And, I, and I'm not going to do it by just willpower. First, I'm just going to do what David does and just say, help me become aware, God, of my thoughts. Because you know them from afar. But help me to learn where, where do my thought patterns go in life? Because I, if I'm going to have the same mind of Christ, it's not going to happen by default. And so the first step is just to become aware of it. <clears throat> um, a second observation, and these are kind of building on each other here, is we saw Jesus was God, but we also see from this text, again, very obvious point, but Paul's reflecting on it. Jesus incarnated. He became man. He became human. It's in verse 6 that he says, um, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. It's the slave king thing that we have here. Again, and then in verse um, 7, he emptied himself, taking on this form. So how should that reality, you know, his motive for doing it, how should that affect our minds and how we live? Well, I, a couple things. Number one, it gives us a whole new dynamic for loving people. If, if this really gets inside of you, this will give you a brand new dynamic for how you love people. What do I mean by that? Well, think about this. Christians worship a God who, who, who is a Godhead, is language. We, we use language like the Trinity, okay? If you have a God, if, if, if you're Unitarian, meaning there's one person in, in your God, you have a deficient God. What do I mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. Who did God love before he created another sentient being? No one. Right? God, is, God is not essentially loving. And so to, to become a loving being, God needed to create humans or supernatural beings in order to meet his needs. Do you see that? He's a God who's needy. He's not complete in and of himself. The, the biblical God is a multi-personal God who has been, there has been a loving give-take love relationship within the Godhead from all eternity. So when he creates, is it out of need? No. He has, he has nothing to get. When, when a multi-personal God creates, it's not to get, it's to, what's the opposite? <laughs> it's purely to give. Every, so therefore, guess what God will never do? Exploit you. See, people who need something from you are tempted to exploit you. And it always happens at one level or another because there's a need. And if you're not meeting that need, well, maybe, maybe I'll, um, I'll manipulate you in order to get my needs met, right? Beings who are, who are needy will at some point or another exploit. A God who needs you to fulfill himself, to become loving or whatever, can exploit you. This God, this is what's so wonderful about scripture. This is a God who will never exploit because his needs are zero, <laughs> utterly fulfilled. So what does that tell you about every, every intent, every motive, if you can see about it, toward you? It's not to get. It is purely to <clears throat> give. <clears throat> see, the temptation for us even, think about, think about the application, okay? Um, 
even if you serve other people, I've got, I've got a good friend who is a therapist. Just this guy's like wonderful person. He, he's just, he cares about people. He gives so much of his time, gives so much of his time. He genuinely loves helping people. <clears throat> his name is David. And he, he, he's told me before, here's the temptation. He said, even for people, and he works with other counselors. And he said, I know people who are extremely empathetic. They're extremely caring and they're gifted at this. They're very, very good. But he said, the danger is that as, as a person moves into someone else's life in order to meet their needs, he says, it's always fulfilling to you. If, you, if you're a helper, if you like that, there's a fulfilling component to it. But there's a danger when that, that even the serving becomes more about you than about the other person. You know what I mean by that? Um, and then he talks about ways you can tell he says, when you don't get the response you want, like you don't get gratitude, man, thank you so much for doing that. I can't believe that you came over on, on your day off and helped in that way. Or man, thanks for listening to me, you know, my problems, my challenges <clears throat> that I'm having. Um, there, there, there are hurt feelings. And he says, when you start to feel snubbed, when you start to feel like, man, they just, you know, they don't really appreciate uh, me. He says, that's when I realize it's becoming about me. My motives are not purely to give. It, it's mixed. <laughs> it's to give, but, but I'm finding there's something under, underneath that. And so those two dangers, he says, you know, when I get coaxed, when I go, when I hear like, you know, people go, man, you're so wise, man, thanks for helping. You're so good at that thing. He says, my danger is arrogance, <laughs> right? But then he says the opposite, when I don't get that, when the person doesn't respond, they don't give me the applaud. He said, I feel crushed. I feel absolutely crushed because I didn't get what I needed. See, <laughs> I didn't get what I needed there. But here's the whole point. When you're trusting God for your identity, I mean, genuinely finding your identity in him, then you're not constantly searching to be, to be fed through how you counseled someone, how you assisted someone, how you helped someone in that way. <clears throat> you you serve not to, again, this is going back to the mind of Christ, you serve not to get, but you genuinely serve to give. You have the same mind that was in Christ in you. That's human flourishing. That's what a community <clears throat> looks like when it does that. Another observation of how should this affect our mind, we, we also see this passage that because of the incarnation, God becoming man, <clears throat> matter matters. Stuff. <laughs> Matter matters. Listen to uh, verse six. I mean, we've read this several times, but we can keep reading here. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form, taking on matter, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, the verb here, being, being God, um, it's in the imperfect tense. And if any of you are grammarians out there, you are an English teacher, whatever, you know that what that means is that it's, it's, it's continuing to be the case. He's being God, meaning he's continuing to be God. So it doesn't say who having been God is instead now become human. It's saying who continuing to be God is also become human. Now, this addresses a huge issue in human history. 
I mean, like long-term, this has been an enormous question within human history, is what's the relationship between the spiritual and the physical? What's that, what's that nature? What's that relationship? If you go back to the ancient Greco-Roman world, um, <clears throat> the, the basic idea is that matter, the physical, worst case, it's evil. Best case, it's, it's impure. It's, it's lesser. And so the concept that any supernatural being what, what, who's good, whatever come in contact with matter would be absurd. It would be ridiculous. This is why Paul says, when he's talking about the Greeks, he says the resurrection, the idea that this is God incarnate, um, he, he says it's a, it's a stumbling block to them. It's a stumbling block because the pure spiritual would never come in that intimate contact with matter, with the physical, even later Gnosticism. This was a her <clears throat> heresy that developed sometime after Paul's writing. Their whole concept of salvation, you know, they said we worship Jesus, but Jesus gives secret knowledge. And through that secret knowledge, you can be saved. And what saved means is you can get out of this physical world and have no contact because again, this is impure, it's, it's lesser. Or if you go to the Eastern world, matter isn't evil but it's, it's more like an illusion. It's not something permanent. It's, it, and it's kind of the problem. The fact that you think it's real, the fact that you think it's important, that's the problem. That's what keeps you tied to repetition of lives. That's what keeps you tied to suffering in some way in your life. So they might say, okay, yes, a divine being could, could take on human form, but only temporarily. <laughs> Eventually, he's got to jettison that thing because matter doesn't matter in this sense. So neither the Greco-Roman world, the Eastern world, and certainly not the Middle Eastern world of Islam could stomach the idea that God inhabited a body permanently, that Jesus has taken on human form, morphe is the word here, permanently, forever. He has tied himself to the human condition. It's uh, in Colossians where Paul says, for in him, speaking of Jesus, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. bodily. He's, he's tying on to that thing. He's saying matter matters. And do you know what this teaches us, different from any other philosophy, is that God does not think that the physical is more important than the spiritual or that the spiritual is more important than the physical. And that changes how we, because remember the whole question is, okay, the so what? Well, that changes, if I have the mind of Christ in me through the spirit, that changes how I deal with things. Um, look at the, you know, in the, in the Bible, the very first picture we have of God in the first book what is he doing? He's, he's creating he has stuff, right? And then he creates these little mud creatures. It says he brought them up out of the dirt. He creates these little mud creatures. And he says, you're going to be my imagers in this world of matter. The very last picture we have of God is him cleaning up the natural universe. Roman 8 talks about that, but we see that in uh, Revelation as well. And getting, you know, getting rid of the toxic waste of evil. And he's rehabiting this beautiful new urban home for himself. It's a city. 
matter matters to God. And in the center of the Bible, you have two main events, Christmas and Easter. Christmas, he takes on a body, and at Easter, he redeems that body. So they're both important to God. Do you remember the, the one warning of consequence that God gave Adam and Eve in the garden? If, if you turn against me, death will enter the world, right? Now, spiritual death is to be separated from God, but it's also physical death. And what's physical death? It's for your immaterial self to be separated from your body. That's not the goal. That's not the, the end. See, sin keeps body and soul apart. That's the nature of it. Jesus came to let body and soul live in integrity. So what does this mean? Well, the gospel allows us to hold these two things. See, if, if you reject the gospel, if you reject this, you can either be religious and reject it, or you can be irreligious and reject it. If, if you're religious and you reject it, um, you're, you're going to be uncomfortable with the spiritual. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's all going to burn. You know, why, why feed people? Why help? Why clean up? Uh, as the old phrase, why polish the brass on the Titanic while it's going down? <laughs> you know, kind of, kind of thing. If you're irreligious, you're going to worship the physical because that's all you have. That's all there is. There's nothing beneath that. You're, you're just sort of a, a, a meat machine walking around. Um, and so that's all there is. And so all life is going to be about physical comfort, nice life. Um, there was a really interesting TED Talk. You guys ever listened to TED Talks before? A lot of them are really fascinating. There was one done probably about a decade ago now. It was by a woman named Cameron Russell. And um, for, for 10 years, she had been a supermodel. And um, when, she, when she came out, she was dressed like one, just like stunning, you know, looking person. <clears throat> and as the talk is going on, she, she takes off the heels she throws a sweatshirt on. She takes her hair out. She's slowly basically sort of removing this supermodel kind of a look. And <clears throat> she's, w- w- what she's talking about is basically when, when, when that's what you're focused on, where does your mind, mind kind of go? And this is what she said. She said, the truth is, as she's taking all, some of the stuff off, I am insecure. I'm insecure because I have to think about what I look like every day day. She said, and if, you, and if you're ever wondering, if I have thinner thighs and shinier hair, will I be happy? She said, you just need to meet a group of models. Because, she said, they have the thinnest thighs, the shiniest hair, the coolest clothes, and this is interesting, from a woman who's been a supermodel for 10 years. She said, and they are the most physically insecure women probably on the planet. Isn't that fascinating? Like, I would never think that. You know, I just think like, they must just be so confident. And she's going, trust me, nope, we're not. <laughs> because that's what, we, that's what we think is, that's all there is. That's what's important. That's how I assess things. And then she ended by saying, this is interesting. She said, image is powerful, but image is superficial. Do you see what this is saying? See, either the physical will be something that will drive you or it will become something you're afraid of or you think is unimportant. Only the gospel allows us to talk, uh, to talk about you know, the salvation of our souls, but also cleaning up the neighborhood. 
that both these things are important, that we can do it with integrity. The Bible's end game is not heaven, <clears throat> meaning some away from earth kind of uh, spiritual existence, meaning somewhere up there. The Bible's end game is new creation. It's the reunion of heaven and earth, God's space and our space together. It's not disembodied intelligence. In the new creation, you're going to hug <laughs> and you're going to eat and you're going to have activities, things to do. You're going to pursue purposes and do those sorts of things. And again, why is this so important? Well, this coming up weekend, um, we have Orphan Care Weekend. Uh, Saturday, Sunday night, the, our, our emphasis is going to be on what is it that we're doing in our world to, to people, to, to things? How are we helping the, those who, who are the most needy? Why is it that the Old Testament scripture constantly talks about the widow, the orphan? Because it matters what we do in this world. Because if the mind of Christ is in me and he cares about matter, and if, I, if I'm called to not think about myself first, there's a direct impact on where my money goes to, on what, where my time goes to, on what I think is important. Why is that? Well, it's because of, it's because of this. Have the same mind in you. Well, first of all, yeah, in your relationships with one another, have the same mind in yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in likeness, being found in human form. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even to the point of death, even death on the cross. You know, one of the fascinating things <clears throat> um, is when you, when you read this passage backwards or kind of inversely, it's, it's painting the picture of Genesis 3. It's, it's painting the human story in Genesis 3. Rewrite Philippians 2, and this is what you'll, you'll read. And this is, this is the human condition. This is what happened on page 3. Though we were not in the very nature of God, we considered equality with God something to be grasped, making ourselves everything. <laughs> Do you see that what Jesus did is the inverse? What was done in the garden was saying, I will grasp onto that. I will not be a servant. I will have it. And what Jesus, the way he reversed that is by reversing the story. The slave king, <laughs> he reversed that by reversing the story. There was an article in the New Yorker a few years back, um, and it was about reality TV shows. This was the particular one where the, the girl, there's a bunch of girls and they're trying to get the guy, I don't know if it was Bachelor or one of those, but... <clears throat> These women are doing whatever it takes to try to get the favors of the bachelor or whoever it is. And in this article, um, Jennifer Posner, she's a journalist, um, an activist, according to the article. She said um, in the show, The Bachelor, <clears throat> it, basically she zeroes in on um, a contestant who, despite having been a vegetarian for 12 years, accepted a piece of lamb from the man just to impress him. So she has this deep commitment to this, but, but just in order to impress this guy, she was willing to completely you know, turn her back on what was so valuable to her. <clears throat> and this is what it says at the end. Um, 
the girl says, my stomach will probably, again, whether she's dramatic or not, but just li listen to what's going on in her head, in her mind. My stomach will probably never be the same, but at least I touched his hand, she said. She said, grateful for the crumbs. After she got the heave-ho from the show, she batted her big eyes at the camera and moaned. This is what she said. You want to see a girl that's crushed? You got her. Isn't that sad? See, for Posner, this, this figure, the woman, was crushed, she said, for our amusement. Huh. This is what this woman was kind of assessing. This girl was crushed for our amusement. And then she said, this, this is the driving force, she thought, behind much of reality television. See, without the incarnation and the cross, we will extort other people. And we will be crushed by the things we give our heart to. Without this, we will extort and we will <clears throat> crush. But here's the reality. And this kind of gets back to that switch thing here. As we go into communion, I want to read Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs. Speaking of Jesus, this is the prophet Isaiah looking forward into the future of the ideal Israelite who will repair all that is broken. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. And this is, I think, a key word. He was crushed for our iniquities. That, that crushing... Um, that, that way of taking advantage of other people, he let himself be taken advantage of. That's the whole story of Easter. That's what we looked at on Good Friday on Easter, is one who said, I will allow someone to take advantage of me, to crush me, because I'm going to do the inverse. Though you weren't God, but wanted to clutch onto it in order to be someone, though I have it, I won't clutch on to it and I'll become no one in order to reverse this great evil. And it's the great reversal. And that's what we celebrate tonight. And I hope this reflection on Philippians 2, it makes the elements that much more meaningful to us once again as we take them of the great reversal and these pictures, these symbols of what the cost was, his body, his, his matter, <laughs> that it mattered and this matters. So during this next song, go to one of the stations, grab the elements, go back to your seat, let's engage in worship, and then at the end of the song, we'll take it together. Would you stand with me as we have the elements, the, the bread, a symbol of Christ's body that he laid down for the great reversal, broken for us. Let's take neat. And the cup, his blood, shed for us, opening a new covenant with God. Let's drink. Heavenly Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters and for myself. God, as we, as we think about this reality that we have been placed in Christ by the Spirit, Lord, we want, we want to tap into that, uh, that power that is there, the power that can come into our mind 
interrupt those thoughts that are self-driven. Father, would you, would you give us a new dynamic for loving other people, for loving the people who are in our lives right now? And God, would you continue to show us and remind us that, that matter does matter to you. You care about this good world that you have made. You will fully redeem it at one point. But God, you call us in the meantime to bring your redemptive love into the circumstances that are broken, that are disjointed, that are fractured. And so God, even as we go into this weekend with orphan care, Lord, I pray that our hearts will be fully engaged. Do things, call us, God, and we will respond. Show us how we can care for those imagers of yours who are so hurt and so broken. Thank you that you do redeem, God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray all of this. Amen. Amen. You guys, so good, as always, to be with you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for engaging and leaning in. So love you guys. See you this weekend. And then next Wednesday, last Wednesday.